So, it's been quite a week. And I find myself wondering at the end of it, what's Jesus and Donald Trump of his time? In particular in this event where he is throwing over the tables in the temple. You see this cartoon? Someone asked you, what would Jesus do? Remind them the flipping tables. It's not the most important image of Jesus, but it is one I love, especially on bad dates, when everyone is expecting you to be nice and gentle and accommodating, because that's clearly not what he wants signs for. So what's he the equivalent of the US president-elect? Think about it. He comes in from the outside, he challenges the elite, he overthrows their power base in ways that are totally unexpected on behalf of those who have been excluded and unheard. Just to be very clear here, I do not believe that Jesus is the equivalent of Donald Trump. <laughs> and I certainly don't believe that Donald Trump is the Messiah or anything like that. Okay? That is about as much as I can say about what's happened in the US. I don't have the knowledge or the right to speak about it, but come see me and listen to what There is an uncomfortable edge to this event in the temple. And it's true that it is disruptive, and it is on behalf of those at the edge, people who are not hurt, the ones who have been disenfranchised by the elite and the powerful. And it's true that what we see in it is anger. And not just Jesus anger, though that's hard enough to deal with. It's clear there are people who are angry with him. And in a week when there has been so much anger, this is not a straightforward story to listen to. And on a day when we are remembering, this is not a straightforward story to listen to. <coughs> and therefore, all the more reason why we should listen to it. So let's just take note of what's going on and listen to hear if it has anything to say to us. Now, you know enough to know the temple system. At various points in the year and at various significant stages in somebody's life, a sacrifice was an appropriate part of the expression of faith and the offering of trust. And a sacrifice needed to be of an animal without spot or blemish. And in order to assure that, there were people whose job it was to sell such animals to the approaching worshippers. That meant nobody had the distress of turning up with their offering only to be turned away because it wasn't right. So the job that the animal sellers did was central to people's ability to worship. And similarly, the money changers. People gave money to the temple as part of their giving to God, and it was used partly to support the temple and the priests, and partly given to the poor. And money given to and in the temple had to be money that was acceptable, that is, money which did not have graven images of people on it, since that was in contravention of the commands, and Roman money had the face of the emperor on it. So the money that was to be given in the temple had to be changed into temple money so that worship could be reverent and honest. So the folk selling animals and the folk changing money weren't imposing anything on people. They were responding to the very proper need and desire that people had to do what right in worship, to express their faith, to offer the best that they had to God. And the place of the temple had been set very early on in Israel's second history. A reading from 1 Kings as part of the dedication prayer of Solomon when the first temple was built under his command. It was part of his legacy as king. He united the kingdom and built the temple. 
Mind you, it is a contested story. Last week, Simon was pointing out that there is a story of exclusivity and a story of inclusivity about God and the people running side by side through the Hebrew Scriptures. And we need to grapple with what that means. And how when we come to Scripture through the story of Jesus, we make sense of that. And in the same way, there is a double story about the King of the There is the story of David and Solomon and the promises of God there will always be one who is the son of David. And the temple that is built by the king will be a place of identity and security for God will be with the people. And that was the story we heard, part of the story we heard read in that prayer. And yet even in that there was, though God lived in a house made by hands, but there is the strand of the story that says Israel is a king because they asked God for one in order to be like nations. And actually God was their king. And that the temple was an expression of the same kind of desire, to make their religious faith and practice into something that fits a pre-existing model of worship and divine presence. And isn't true to who they are. And the voices of the prophets through the years are challenges both to royal power and to the place of the temple as central to Israel's encounter with God. As we read through the words of the prophets, we read the question of the assumptions that there should be a king and the conviction there should be a temple. And when the nation, or at least the elite of the nation, is taken into exile, and rule is taken into the hands of oppressive power, and the temple is destroyed, one of the struggles, and one of the discoveries, is that God is not located in the temple, but is where the people are. And God's rule is not limited to the divine order of Cain, but is present through the people listening to the law, and responding with faith and trust. And these two accounts of identity and faith run side by side, and they come together on other places <coughs> in this clash. And Jesus throws the tables around. For here is the temple, the centre of faith and practice for the generations long up. This one for 46 years. That's quite some building project, by the way. They curse going on all the time. They're still building their temple after 46 years. Anyway. For generations and for 46 years and then when the loss passed, this has been the place where people express true faith and discover true presence. And it is the place of elite power and compromise with the empire. In its very origins, the temple was the expression of the royal power to control religion. All other shrines on the first suburb were suppressed when the temple in Jerusalem became the centre of the practice of the faith. And now, in the generation of which we are reading, the leaders of the temple are the ones who are keeping peace with Rome, making sure everything is safe and secure and that the nation can survive. And the ones who will eventually hand Jesus over to Pilate with the comment, he's fomenting rebellion against Caesar, and who will justify what we do with the argument that it is right for one man to die for the sake of the nation. They are the centre of Judean identity and they are compromising with the oppressors. And it might be reality, but it is also not what those who are coming to the temple to worship are looking for. There I think we get near to the centre of Jesus' anger. Those who are coming to worship are coming to worship. They are coming to carry out the forms of their faith, not as empty ritual, but as a true expression of trusting God and seeking God's will and way. The way that the temple life is organised is taking that from them. 
So he is angry. You have made my father's house, and it is still his father's house. You have made my father's house a marketplace. Is he angry because it's an affront to God? Actually, Jesus doesn't seem very worried about protecting God. As if somehow God is in danger. Is he angry because those who in faith and hope are seeking God are having their practice and their intention subverted and distorted? Because we often see God angry on behalf of those who are shut out. I can't say much about the US, though I suspect that just as in our own elections and processes, there are all sorts of intentions in what people have done that are not actually going to be expressed in what happens. Because the systems and the structures have their own life and are huge easily to change, but I do believe that we can see something, an example of something like this, happening with our Remembrance Day practice. I believe in Remembrance Day. It matters that we remember. The wearing of our copies, the gathering, the standing in silence, the remembering of what has happened, really matters. And it has become politicised and challenged and changed. And there have been questions raised. And there have been challenges offered. And the whole thing seems to become very politicised. And I started to listen to what's being said. And when I listen, this is what I hear. The British nation is copywriting the copy. And he's using it as a marketing tool. The website actually says, with 97% awareness of our copy brand in the UK, we are uniquely placed to create a mutually beneficial partnership that meets your business needs. By working with us, you can differentiate your brand to increase sales and competitive advantage. The Legion is making money for its causes by signing deals with arms companies. And those companies are sponsoring one of its biggest fundraising events. The ball that the Legion holds every year is sponsored by a whole array of military and arms related companies, including states who manufacture handguns and pistols. Poppy is turning up on what business? And at the heart of all of this is a shift that has taken the wearing of the poppy. And the money raised from the poppy appeal away from its previous emphasis on remembrance, that commitment to mourn and to pledge never again, which was so much part of what I knew the campaign for, towards something very different. In the debate about whether the English and the Scottish football team should be allowed to wear the poppies or perhaps required to wear them, the Director General of the Poverty Association, Chris Seekins, noted, the FA has helped us to explore every alternative bill. We're satisfied that they will enter the competition knowing they have shown proper respect for our armed forces. As a commentator on this notes, this whole exercise in other words is about showing proper respect for our armed forces. The poppy is no longer a signifier of remembrance, but a potent symbol of the armed forces and showing due respect for the military. And this is one of the publicity shots. I'm angry at what's been done to them by those who offer it to me and indeed are beginning to require it. 
And as I learned what I mean, what I mean comes to point at the very beginning of the In Flanders Field, in Flanders Field, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard as the council. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt born, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Fields. Take up our call with the fool. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not see the poppies grow in Flanders It's a powerful and evocative poem, and it's very hard. It's the commitment to continue fight. Take up our honour with the folk. The temple in its very beginnings was a symbol and practice of royal power, and that in time led to extortion and its destructiveness. And at the heart of the poppy commemoration is a poem about continuing war. Can you see this picture? There's a t-shirt there about my mother was a veteran. We remember those who have fought and honoured. But can you, see, can you see the furthest way? Future soldier. What happened to never again? What happened to committing to a world where war did not destroy our children? What happened when we turned the poppy or let the poppy be turned into something that sponsors future soldiers? Like those who believed that they were coming to worship and discovered in Jesus' prophetic action a deeper truth about what was going on, so we are faced with a deeper truth about what we thought we were doing. And what does Jesus do? He overturns it. He refuses it. He is angry that people have dared to take something important and deep in the life of faith and turned it into something cozied up to arms and empire, based on staying safe and making a compromise peace. Our poppies, well, they're here and they're wrong. We may or we may not want to think about what we're doing in wearing a poppy, what's going on behind it, and how we react to that. If you want to read about it, a booklet that um, a veterans organisations produce, which tells us story. It's freely available. There's a copy here, you can get it online. There's important stuff to think through here about how we remember, and what we remember, and why we remember, and what we do with what we remember. There's something to reflect on prayerfully about how we as those who look to a kingdom that isn't based on violence and isn't shaped by national borders, remember all the fallen and how we find ways creatively and lovingly to assist, to resist the assumptions of militarism and the perception of violence as a first resort. But as always, it points us to bigger questions and more radical wonderings. What other symbols? Have we identified with so closely that we don't see their destructive roots and their dangerous growth? What is our temple? The one that needs to be overthrown if we were to follow the risen one. Jesus says to them, don't put your faith in the practices rooted in this building. However venerable, however significant, however rooted in it your identity is, trust me, follow me. Because where I am, where you will find God. If you tear this down in three days, I will raise it again. And later they remembered this, and it began to make sense. And if nothing else, that comment is a reassurance that sometimes understanding comes later. We just keep going and let things happen. It begins to make sense. 
much more than that. It's a challenge and an invitation. Let go of the venerable place where you have been taught and have known that God is to be found. And dare to trust in what was vulnerable at risk. What Jesus is doing here, it's not the only place he does it, does it, is uncovering, unmasking something that has been hidden and covered up. The way in which the highest and holiest, the temple, where God promised to be present, have been distorted and become oppressive. And he does it often in the stories we have of his ministry. He does it when he challenges the use of Sabbath, when he heals people. Instead of Sabbath should be a gift becoming an oppression. He heals people and refuses to be constricted by the laws. He does it when he refuses the purity laws and touches or accepts the touch of the woman with the issue of blood. And she's healed and reinstated in the community. He does it when he eats with sinners and compromisers and won't let them remain in scapegoats, excluding to make the insiders feel better. He uncovers what's going on. He goes on and on, unmasking the hidden oppressions of the faith practices of the sanctified rituals. And he does it so that people are freed and given life. The unmasked who God is to. They thought, they hoped, in coming to the temple, in buying the sacrifices and changing the money, they would encounter God and be brought into contact with the divine. Here is the divine coming to them in an angry voice, challenging and refusing a system that's taking control and insists on being constrained. Refuses to give his authority. By what authority do you do this? They said, and he didn't answer. gives them this enigmatic comment about tearing it down and I will rebuild it. It's hardly illuminating. He won't play the game of trading power worlds and supremacy actions. He will be seen or not seen as the presence of, and the action of God in the way he frees and restores and invites and removes. He will not force it. The choice he puts them is very deep. Will you look for God in this massive and unshakable construction of the temple, which will disappear within 50 years of this story? Will you put your faith in your, will you look for God in the elaborate and time-honored and well-known and properly organized structures of faith and practice? Will you see them for what they have become, distorted and misleading, and let them go and go where I am. And where he is is not easy. As the other writers tell the account of Jesus' ministry, this event comes at the beginning of the last week of his life, and indeed is part of the reason why he's arrested and executed. Even here in John's account, where John puts it at the beginning of his ministry, it is part of that trajectory, away from what is assumed and safe and stable and into unknown territory. And we can say that stuff so easily. We can talk with integrity, not with ease, about following Jesus wherever he leads and going to the margins and even facing the cross. We can say it. What does it mean? What will it mean for us here and now in the kind of world we are dealing with, where people are fleeing from violence and ending up in refugee camps which are then demolished around them? In the kind of world where community support for family and financial difficulty is so stretched that people need to use food banks more and more. But there are people sleeping on our streets because there are not enough hostel places, and the system for getting them into somewhere permanent is not exactly user friendly. And where a scaly number of them 
are the ex-service people we are remembering today. But the heir to our throne on Friday attended a remembrance event in Bahrain, which is a country to which we sell arms and which uses them to kill peaceful protesters. And where we have politicians who believe it's acceptable to mock people of another colour and denigrate women and people who will vote for them. What institutions and sacred practices, what patterns of behaviour and assumed goods do we need to let be overthrown to be with the Lord in the kingdom? And dare we do? And where might we start? Where might we start in our own life and our own practice? What are the sacred institutions and systems that we simply take for granted and that might not be the good they were when we first met In our ways of worship, in our ways of organising our life together, in our structures and service. What has become secret when it was supposed to be temporary and so needs to be overthrown, even with the disruption? And what new life, what different possibility might turn up in our living and our way of meeting the needs around us and our capacity to share the news of this new life and in our own prayer and depth of life? Where do we start? And who knows where we might end up? And can we trust the one who says, not there, but here? Not in the temple, but in me. Not in the sacred right, but in the following. Not in the knowing and being in control, but in daring and failing and knowing that that's where I am.